We are in part 18, and we're still talking about the flood. So what we're going to learn today is that after all this time with uh, Noah in the, in the ark, the waters prevailing over the earth for five months, God remembers Noah, and God starts to remove the flood waters. Eventually the ark touches land, uh, but the world's still covered with water. Noah sends out birds to try to see if there's dry land out there. The earth ends up uh, finally completely drying, and God commands Noah to get off the ark, and Noah, his family, and the animals, in fact, leave the ark. And then at the end, if I have time, we're going to get into the Ice Age. I hope to have time to get into the Ice Age today. If I can't, if we can't get into it today, I'll talk about it next week, but uh, I'm hoping to get to the Ice Age today. Okay. Uh, first, let's do a little review of last time. So last time we were uh, we talked about uh, chapter 7. We're going to be in chapter 8 today. In chapter 7, we see that there's a very careful chronology laid out for the flood, um, that uh, the flood starts with um, the fountains of the great deep and the, and the rain, and it's global. It's 150 days. It covers all the high mountains, and the flood... We talked about at the very end a little bit, I'll go over it again today, how the flood was responsible for the fossil record. So um, we see that the flood starts at a particular day. Uh, He's 600 years old, Um, he goes into the ark with his family, and we get another inventory of all the things that go onto the ark. From the biblical information, we can tell a little bit about genetics. Uh, We know, for example, that... um, there was only one Y chromosome on the ark because Y chromosome was only passed from uh, uh, a father to his son. And so we had Noah and his three sons. And so Noah passed his Y chromosome to his three sons. And so there's only one Y chromosome on the ark. Um, And so that's a great mystery to those who don't believe in the account in scripture. Why is there so little diversity in the Y chromosome of all the men who walked the planet? Uh, in the evolutionary story, if we were really here for hundreds of thousands or millions of years and all those generations, there should be much more diversity of the Y chromosome. Uh, but there's not. Uh, there's very little diversity in the Y chromosome of people in the world today, of all the men in the world today. So uh, just as a reminder, the 23rd chromosome pair here, if you're a man, you have an X and a Y. If you're a woman, you have an X and X for your 23rd chromosome pair. Um, and so on the, the, for the women on the ark, there was four women on the ark, and assuming they weren't related, that Mrs. Noah was not related to the three uh, daughter, daughters-in-law, and that the daughters-in-law weren't related to one another, the maximum there could have been was eight X chromosomes. So uh, two X chromosomes for each woman, eight total for the four women on the ark. And so that gives you much more X chromosome diversity, and that's actually what we see. Uh, There's a lot more diversity in X chromosomes than there are in Y chromosomes. In addition, there's another uh, genome that's much smaller uh, that's called mitochondrial uh, DNA. Uh, It's a mitochondrial genome. And that is only passed from the mother to the offspring. And so, therefore, if we track it through generations, it's only passed from mothers to daughters because when it's passed from a mother to a son then the son can't pass it on to his descendants because men don't pass on the mitochondrial DNA. Only women do, so it goes daughter, 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 daughter. Um, And so how many 
of these mitochondrial DNA sequences were on the ark. Well, there were four, but Mrs. Noah, according to the Bible, didn't have any daughters. And so only the three mitochondrial DNAs from the three daughter-in-laws came off that ark. And so it's a great mystery to secular geneticists that there's three, and exactly three, mitochondrial DNA sequences in the world today. Uh, they call them, the, the, the seculars call them M, N, and R. They have names for them, but there, there's three of them. Um, and to somebody who believes the Bible story, that's no surprise whatsoever that there's three, and only three, mitochondrial DNA sequences in the world today. Um, so then we talked about the fact that we have this sequence uh, that we go from uh, a particular day on Noah's 600th year, second month, 17th day, um, and then we get the sources of the flood water, the fountains of the great deep, and the floodgates of the sky, and the floodgates of the sky are described as these 40 days of continuous rain. Uh, fountains of the great deep, most likely water coming up from below. Um, then we've got that um, the final act, God closes the door of the ark. Um, and that ends the post-flood world. From that point on, everybody outside the ark is doomed. So, if all this water covered the earth, where did it go? So we talked about that. Uh, today, the earth is covered 70% by water. Uh, so there's much more water surface than there is land surface. And in addition to that, the water is much deeper than the land is high. So the average depth of the ocean is 2.4 miles. The average height of the land is 0.5 miles. So the ocean covers much more of the earth, and it's also much deeper um, than the earth, than the continents are high. Um, so if you made the earth into a smooth sphere, so if you flattened it out into a smooth sphere, uh, it would be entirely covered with water to a depth of two miles. Um, so there's an enormous amount of water in the oceans, in the present oceans, plenty of water enough to cover the whole earth in a big flood. Um, we notice, as we look at the description of the flood, we see the absolute language, the word all repeated, the word every, um, to make sure that it's very clear that everything outside the ark died. Um, and to show that the, the flood was global in extent. So it's as if the Holy Spirit wants to make sure, wants to make positive that we understand the global extent of the flood, and the reason for that, really, there's a theological reason for that. Uh, it's to show that God's judgment was total and inescapable, with the single exception of the one way of salvation that God himself provided in the ark. And that's exactly what we have. It's a, it's a perfect picture of God's salvation in, uh, in all time, from the beginning to all the way to today, that if you're inside the ark, the one way of salvation, salvation through grace, uh, by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the ark. That's the one way of salvation. If you're inside that, then you're safe. If you're outside that, then you're not safe. Um, and that's why Jesus and um, Peter used the flood as an analogy to Christ's second coming. Okay, uh, we have this repetition of the word uh, blotted out. Uh, the Hebrew word that's translated blotted out here, it means to exterminate or obliterate, and the subject of that verb is God. So it's clear that God's doing the exterminating and the obliterating. Um, and then there's a so and there's a list of all that's exterminated and obliterated, and then there's another list of those who are saved. Um, and then today we're going to get into 
um, the water draining off the land. So at the very end, we talked about fossils. And so um, the global flood is responsible for the fossil record, uh, for uh, the vast majority of the fossil record. What we see in the fossil record is essentially a sequence of burial of uh, ecosystems. So um, sea creatures are buried by turbidity currents uh, to begin with, and then you have the burial of those things that were amphibians or lived close to the, um, close to the water. And then um, higher up in the fossil sequence are um, uh, higher creatures that would have been able to think about getting to higher land. Um, and then, of course, that, is, uh, that, that, that sequence uh, is in place in many places, but it's also all mixed up in many other places. There are fossil graveyards with many ecosystems all mixed together. And that's because of the mixing of the flood, that it got all jumbled up in many places because of the violence of the flood. And so that's what we would expect if there was a big flood. We would expect that there was a sequence of burial um, in general, but there were many places where it's mixed up. And that's exactly what we see in the fossil record. There's many places where the fossils are mixed up in different ecosystems. And they're, they're very difficult to explain from the evolutionary standpoint. Okay, um, so that was what we talked about last time. Go ahead, Doug. Um, are you going to speak to, I know you mentioned it before, but I, I didn't know if you are going to speak in any more detail about coal. Um, and I think you mentioned and oil. Yeah, so I, talked, I touched briefly on coal, and I'm, I'm really not planning to talk too much more about coal, but I'll go back through what we talked about before, um, that coal is um, plant matter that's smooshed together. Um, and that plant matter, um, if you think about every single tree on the entire planet being ripped up all at once, which is what you had at the flood, and then um, it being kind of mixed around in the water and, uh, and then um, being, being kind of mixed up in the sediment that comes out of the flood, um, and then kind of buried by sediments coming out of the flood. Um, then you have lots and lots and lots and lots of plant matter. Um, you have an unprecedented event where all the trees on the whole planet are ripped up at once and smashed together. Um, and then that's the perfect conditions for making coal. Um, and so the evolutionary story is it takes millions of years for the coal to be formed, that it takes millions of years for it to gradually be compressed. But um, I think I mentioned before that uh, two of the creationist organizations got together, ICR and CMI, and they took samples of coal from all around the world, many samples, and they sent them to carbon-14 dating labs. And initially, the carbon-14 dating labs didn't want to um, test them because in the evolutionary story, there can't be any carbon-14 in there. So carbon-14 has a half-life of a little over 5,000 years, and um, the, the standard rule of thumb is after 10 half-lives, it's all gone. Uh, for any material that you're testing, after 10 half-lives, all the material is gone. So if you cut it in half 10 times, there's none left, essentially. Um, not detectable, anyway. Um, and so, therefore, nothing over 50,000 years could possibly have any carbon-14 in it. And the standard story is coal takes millions of years to, um, to form. And so carbon-14 is in living things, and once the living thing dies, there's no more carbon-14 going in. There's only carbon-14 decaying, 
And so after 50,000 years, there can't be any carbon-14 in there. And so in a secular lab, and they're thinking there can't be any uh, carbon-14. And so they didn't want to test it. And the creationist organization says, we know, we know, just test it. And there was carbon-14 in every single coal sample. And so what that tells you is every single coal sample from all over the world was less than 50,000 years old, um, just for there to be detectable carbon-14. Um, so that, that means that the standard story of how coal forms is wrong. It doesn't take millions of years to form coal. Um, it formed during the flood, uh, is, is what happened. And so um, there's an enormous coal seam that's in the northern hemisphere. There's an enormous coal seam that's in the southern hemisphere. It goes all around the world. Uh, the one in the uh, northeast United States goes, um, it's the exact same coal seam with the exact same plant fossils around it uh, in the northern United States and in, in um, England. And then also in um, the, the, the southern part of Russia. It's the exact same coal seam. And so it was all laid down together during the flood. Uh, and so there's, it, everything that we see in the coal is very consistent with the flood story. And there's big problems um, if, if you try to make it um, fit the evolutionary story. It doesn't fit uh, the evolutionary story. <clears throat> so that's coal. Um, I don't really have any other information about coal. Did you have a specific question about coal? All right, diamonds are the same. Diamonds are supposed to take billions of years, and the creationist organization did the same thing. They took samples of diamond, ground it up a little bit, um, sent it to the labs, and it has detectable carbon-14. So there's supposed to be a billion years to form a diamond, but we can, from the carbon-14 dating, we, we know for certain that it's less than 50,000 years old. So let's take a look at chapter 8, the flood subsides. And so uh, if you'll open your Bible to chapter 8, we're going to go through uh, the verses here that describe how the flood water receded or subsided from the earth. So we've gone over for the five months it prevailed. So there was five months the, the whole earth is uh, covered with water. Uh, and then eight one says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. So God was thinking about Noah. He was also thinking about the animals. So I mentioned this before, but uh, if somebody tells you that God doesn't care about animals, that's not right. God cares about animals. It's right here in the Bible. Now, it's not like the animal rights activists want to make them equal with humans. That's not right at all. But he also cares about his creation, including the animals. And God caused the wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained. And the water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. So after 150 days, the water decreased, and it just described how it decreased. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The water steadily decreased, um, the water decreased steadily until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Then it came about at the end of the 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made, and he sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, so she returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself, 
So he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came to him toward evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. Then he waited yet another seven days, and he sent out the dove. But she did not return to him again. Now it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the earth and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by their families from the ark. So that's the description of the water going down and then Noah coming off the ark. So let's take an overview. So after the flood prevailed on the earth for five months, God begins to act explicitly on the behalf of the ark's passengers. The flood waters abated over the earth thanks to a wind that God sent. We don't know exactly how that worked, what kind of wind was that, how did it dry up the water, and likely mountain uplift and ocean subsidence as well. The ark comes to rest in the mountains of Ararat, although no land is yet visible at that point. It was another 74 days before the mountaintops were exposed. And then another 40 days after that, Noah started to send out birds to see if the land had dried. Finally, a year and 10 days after the passengers boarded the ark, the land had dried sufficiently, and God told Noah to leave the ark. And then the post-flood conditions, both warm oceans and cool continents, leads to an ice age, lasting for several centuries after the flood. And so we'll talk about that ice age, I hope, if we have time um, at the end. So uh, here's our timeline once again. And so we had the five months of prevailing. So 150 days, uh, the floodwaters prevailed over the earth. And then the ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat on the second day, uh, the 17th day of the seventh month of Noah's 600th year. But it's not until the first day of the 10th month, about two and a half months later, that we, he actually sees the peaks of mountains. So it comes to rest, because um, the, so there's some of the ark that's under the water, and it bumps into the land under the water, but there's still only water visible. Um, until two and a half months later, he starts to see mountain peaks around it. He wakes another 40 days and starts sending out birds. Uh, then he waits uh, another month, and he takes the... Um, uh, the roof off, he takes the, uh, uh, the covering off of the ark, he looks around, and it looks dry. But he waits another two months before the earth really is dry. And so, what's the difference here? So, it looks dry, in other words, it's not covered by water, but what is the earth there right after the waters run out? It's mud. It's ridiculous, thick, deep, gross mud that you couldn't walk on. Um, so he waits another two months for that to dry out, for it to really be dry, and then he leaves the ark. Okay, and you can, you can write a table like this if you go verse by verse. You can go day by day, verse by verse, um, and this is one table that somebody's made that, uh, that tells you um, the 600th year of Noah's life, the 601st year, 
which month of that year, which day of that year, what happened in the scripture reference. It's easy to make a table like that from the information. So the Holy Spirit has made sure we can really understand how long this flood was. It was a year and ten days. Uh, you can see it from the information that's provided in scripture. Okay, so let's take a look at what these verses have to say. So, God remembered Noah, uh, verse 8-1, a very nice verse, especially for Noah, uh, that God remembered him. So, uh, the flood account, it's written in it as a chiasmus, and so I'll show you in just a second what a chiasmus is. It's a special structured way of putting together a story so that it's easy to remember to tell orally. And so, remember that Moses didn't write this stuff down till thousands of years after this, these events, many of these events in the early parts of Genesis. And so it was originally either oral tradition or family documents that were handed down um, so that people would know the stories. And then the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write it down. But before that, it was, it, the stories existed before that, before Moses wrote them down. And there is evidence from the structure of the, many of the Genesis accounts that they were structured in such a way that they were easy to remember so that you could tell it to your kids and grandkids. Uh, yes? A lot of what they did was in song. Is it possible it could have been in song of someone? Possible, but it's not, um, it's not written in Hebrew poetry, which okay. lends itself to song. Like the Psalms, of course, are written in Hebrew poetic style. Um, this is not. This is a historical narrative. But the historical narrative it itself is written in such a way, and I'll show you here in a minute, that makes it easier to remember if you're going to tell the story orally. So God remembers Noah. That is the middle of the chiasmus. I'll show you that in a minute. Uh, and, of course, it's not that Noah that God forgot Noah. Right? God just doesn't forget anything. It's a Hebrew idiom meaning that God began to act again on Noah's behalf. And you see this same Hebrew idiom throughout the Bible. Uh, Genesis 19.29, God remembered Abraham. He never forgot that Abraham was there. This is a Hebrew idiom, meaning he was about to start acting on his behalf. Uh, Exodus 2.24, God remembered his covenant. Of course, God had not forgotten his covenant. Uh, Jeremiah 2.2, God remembered Israel. Of course, God had not forgotten Israel. He was about to do something. Uh, Jeremiah 31.20, God remembered Ephraim. He hadn't forgotten Ephraim, he was just about to do something. So this is a repeated Hebrew idiom in the Old Testament. God remembers something, that means he's going to act on, on behalf. Uh, then we see the results of God's remembrance, which is to take action so that the water subsided and the water receded. God both caused the wind and also restrained the sources of water uh, to make sure there was no more water, no new water coming in. Uh, this is the chiasmus. So this is a chiasmus that goes all the way from... Genesis chapter 6 to Genesis chapter 9. It's a three-chapter chiasmus uh, where there is parallel at the beginning and the end. So in 6.10, we have Noah and his sons. In 19, 9.19, we have Noah and his sons. In 6.13, we have all life on earth. In 9.17, we have all life on earth. We have a curse on the earth in 6.13. We have a blessing on the earth in 9.13. We have a the ark in 614, the ark in 910, we have all living creatures in 617, we have all living creatures in 910. All the way down to the middle, things like entry onto the ark in 713, exit from the ark in 815. Uh, waters increase in 717, waters decrease in 813. This structure, um, and notice what's in the very middle of this chiasmus, God remembered Noah. That's the key 
thing in the whole story. You've got to remember Noah. And so the structure is made so that you can remember it easily. Um, around the whole story of the flood, from chapter 6 to chapter 9. Um, and the key verse in the very center of the chiasmus is God remembered Noah. Oh, it's kind of like all of these events took place and then God says, remember, now I'm going to undo. Yeah, yeah, so that's right. So he, he says all these events uh, that involve the curse and the flood and the, and the way of salvation. And then he has, God remembers Noah, and then everything is, is kind of reversed. And the floodwaters come out and they come out of the ark and he blesses them as they come out of the ark. Yes. Diane. It's found in other places in Genesis. Uh, there are other chiasmus in Genesis. Um, there, are, there are smaller ones. This is the biggest one. Uh, there are smaller ones, yes, in other places, in Genesis in particular, especially Genesis 1 to 11, uh, because it wasn't written down yet in a systemized way by the Holy Spirit, by the hand of Moses, until much later. And so, in order to remember it, there's these kind of devices in that. Okay, so continuing with the story, so uh, we, we learn, uh, once again, we get the provision of an accurate timing of events down to the day, uh, seventh month, 17th day. Um, the ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat. So, uh, so probably about one-third of the ark was underwater. So if you do the calculation of the buoyancy of a big wooden boat like that, the amount of animals that were on there, something like a third of the boat was underwater. And so... Uh, there still would have been 15 feet of water covering the entire earth when the bottom of the ark touched land. Um, so still lots of water out there as the water slowly goes down, even after the ark touched on top of the mountains. So still water as far as the eye can see. It takes almost another two and a half months as the water slowly recedes for the peaks surrounding uh, the surrounding mountains to begin to emerge from the water. So once the, the ark comes to rest and they feel it come to rest, um, then it's still another two and a half months until they see anything but water when you look out. <clears throat> okay. And then the first day of the tenth month, you start to see the mountain peaks peeking up uh, through the water. Um, and so we've had the mountains rest on there, and then it's all this time, two and a half months, before the peaks are seen. Um, and there's still a lot more time between before the ground in general. Yes, go ahead, Alan. I'm going to maybe add there that what's probably going on, I think, is water is receding because the mountains are rising. Mm -hmm. And so as the mountains rise, they're giving, making space for the water to run off. Yep. And the emphasis in the scripture is the receding because that's for what they're seeing. Right. But probably both are happening at the same time. That's right. And so um, it, most likely, well, there's lots of geologic evidence of uplift in mountains all over the world. So most likely the mountains are coming up. And so we talked about this, I think, a few weeks ago, that um, the current ocean basins are made of very dense rock compared to the continental rock. Continental rock is much less dense than ocean basin rock. And so when you have a, a, a diversity, uh, a difference of density between one subject, uh, one uh, uh, thing and another, what happens? The denser thing falls, and the less dense thing rises. And so you have the continents rising, and you have the ocean basins falling, both things. And so what does that do to the water? So water, 
under the force of gravity goes to the lowest place, and that's the ocean basins are sinking and sinking and sinking. The mountains, the continents are rising, 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 and so the water flows off from the continents onto the current ocean basins. And so you're seeing both of those things, mountains coming up, oceans going down, water receding, and so um, Alan's exactly right. The, the fact that the, ocean, the, the, the mountains are peaking up out of the ocean, um, part of that, at least, is that the mountains are going up. Well, yeah. Just yeah. Quick, how far did he, um, from when he entered that arc until he got off that arc, what was the distance? How, how far had he traveled? No way to know. Um, yeah, so there's no way to know because um, the Bible tells us that the, the world that was that then was was destroyed. Okay. So we don't even know what that world looked like. Okay. Um, so in, in terms of the current continents, we, we don't even know if the current continents were the continents at that time. Um, so there's really no way to know where Noah started. Um, we know about where he landed, the mountains of Ararat, um, it's in the Middle East there. Uh, there's a lot of speculation about exactly where, um, it, it, whether it's the mountain that's called Ararat today or the general region um, around there. Uh, but yeah, so, um, yes? That, that kind of takes away, maybe, and correct me if I'm wrong, I would think that that removes the idea of kind of Pangea or something like that. Not necessarily. So um, there is evidence of continental drift. Um, there's very slow continental drift now, um, but it, it does look like the plates fit together and they have drifted. And it's possible that they drifted at a much greater rate during the flood than they do now. If that's the case, then there could have been something like Pangaea and the continents drifted, especially during the flood. In my mind, that means, and if I'm wrong about this, please help me out, um, that the water covered the earth, all the sediment settled out, and then the continents drifted apart underneath the water. Or it was happening during the flood, during that whole year of the flood. Okay. Um, but but there's, that's still, there's a lot of speculation there. I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us that there was a Pangea, or it doesn't tell us anything about that. Um, it's one possible theory. Okay, um, and so is the ark still there? Can we go find the ark somewhere in the Middle East? Uh, from an apologetic standpoint, finding the ark is unnecessary, especially since the biblical and geological evidence of the flood is so plain. We talked about the geological evidence of the flood. We talked about the biblical evidence, evidence of the flood. So we know there was a flood. We don't need to find the ark to know that there was a flood. Um, also, would God really want a relic that might become a substitute for him? To worship this ark. Well, you say, well, that couldn't happen. Well, that actually did happen with the bronze serpent. God commanded Moses to make this bronze serpent in Numbers chapter 21 and lift it up to heal the people that were bitten by snakes. But centuries later, people worshipped the serpent itself. So godly King Hezekiah broke it into pieces in 2 Kings chapter 18. Um, and so relics get worshipped. And so... Uh, the fact that there's no ark around for people to worship, especially in the post-flood era, is probably a good thing. Finally, the absence of the ark proves nothing about the reality of the flood. Let me give you an example. Nobody has ever been able to find the Mayflower. That boat does not exist. Nobody knows where it went. Nobody knows what happened to it. Does that mean that the pilgrim voyage to America never happened? 
because we can't find the Mayflower. No, of course not. It doesn't mean. Uh, the current theory is that it was made into a barn in, in Buckinghamshire, but nobody knows for sure what happened to that Mayflower. Um, and that, of course, that does not mean that the pilgrims never came to America because there's, we can't find the Mayflower. Uh, it is likely that the wood of the ark was used to make shelters and fires for warmth and tools and animal pens in the initially treeless post-flood world. Um, so it took a while for the trees to grow and start to make lumber again. Um, but you had this source, this enormous source of lumber, right there. Um, and so uh, that's my guess, is the people said, hey, look at all that wood there we could use to build houses and stuff rather than freeze to death in the open. Um, and so I think that's what they did. <clears throat> so uh, then, we, then we have this uh, 40 days. Um, Noah opens the window of the ark that he had made, he's, and he starts to send out birds. Um, he, he starts to send out a series of birds to fly around and find out if there's really any dry land out there. Uh, the first bird he sends out is a raven. It flew here and there, which is a Hebrew expression, meaning the raven flew back and forth repeatedly. The Masoretic text doesn't explicitly rule out the possibility that the raven later returned, but the Septuagint is more explicit. The Septuagint says, and it went forth and did not return. Uh, the Masoretic text doesn't really specify, but the Septuagint does, and so do a couple of the other more ancient manuscripts. Uh, Syriac manuscript, for example. The Vulgate has that it doesn't return. Um, so I, I think probably the raven didn't return. Uh, Noah deduces that there's, uh, there was some land somewhere for the raven to land on and not come back. But he just doesn't know. It's inconclusive. He doesn't know whether it's safe to leave the ark or not. Um, and so next he sends out a dove to find out if there was dry land available anywhere. So the first time Noah sends out the dove, it does not find anything. So it comes back to the ark. Um, so it says, but the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. And it's because the water was on the surface of all the earth. So there was still a lot of water out there. And so she comes back. Um, the Bible tells us the water was on the surface of all the earth. Uh, so evidently there was some place that the raven was able to find. But when the dove went out, he couldn't find a place. Um, even though the water's now been receding for four months. At this point, the water's been going down for four months. Um, there's still very little dry land, even in the mountains. Noah, of course, shows great patience. Uh, even though he was probably anxious to walk on dry land after almost a year in the ark, he waits. Um, he waits another seven days before he sends the dove out again. Um, and so the dove, the second time he sends the dove out, it comes back with this olive branch, um, the olive leaf, a freshly plucked olive leaf, freshly picked olive leaf. And so this shows, according to the Bible, that the water was abated from the earth. And so essentially, in the area around the ark, the water has gone. It's no longer underwater, uh, the whole area around the ark. Um, the freshly picked olive leaf is evidence that the ground has dried enough for plants to start to grow. Uh, so that's the implication, that this is an olive plant that has started to grow so it has leaves. So there's dry, dry ground somewhere that's dry enough that some seed that's been floating around for almost a year 
on one of these floating beds of vegetation, and it lands on mud, it sticks in the mud, and it starts to grow, and it makes a leaf. And the dove finds it, picks the leaf, brings it back to Noah. However, Noah waits another seven days. So he's not, uh, not going to just rush off this ark. Uh, he waits another seven days, and he sends the dove out again. So he sent the dove out, it came back. He sent it out again, it comes back with an olive leaf. He sends it out a third time. And this time, the dove doesn't come back at all. I don't know how long Noah waited, but he waits and it doesn't come back. Um, so now he knows that the dove has found a place to live. Um, and so altogether, Noah spent three weeks as the water continues to recede, sending out these birds. So we have mountains uh, at the five-month point, resting on the mountains of Ararat. Uh, two and a half months later, he can start to see peaks of mountains. He waits 40 days and starts sending out birds, but still, he doesn't leave the ark. He waits another month before he even takes the window off, uh, the roof off the top, the covering off the top. And he still doesn't come off then. He waits another two months after that before he finally comes off. So in the 601st year of his life, so we started on the 600th year, now we're in the 601st year of Noah's life, and the first month, the first day, so January 1st, on the modern calendar, uh, the water's dried up. Noah removes the covering of the ark, so the top of the ark, and he looks around. So he waits another month after the birds, and then on January 1st, um, he, uh, the Bible tells us the water was dried up from the earth. And so at that point, Noah still does not come off the ark, uh, but he removes the covering, top part of the ark, and he looks around. And he looks around and sees, well, it looks dry. Everything looks dry. I don't see the ocean anymore. I'm looking around. I don't see the ocean anymore. Ground looks dry. But he still waits another two months after that. After he looks around, there's no water anywhere, so he can't see the ocean anymore. It looks like everything's dry land now. He still doesn't come out. He waits another two months. Uh, all the months of January and February on the modern calendar, um, essentially, <clears throat> he waits. Um, even after everything looks like dry land, he no longer can see any ocean water. Um, he still waits another two months. Um, and now it really looks dry. So what is he seeing, actually? So after all the water has receded, so he can't see water anymore, it's still mud. It's still nasty mud. And so he waits two months for the nasty mud to dry, is what he does, uh, before he goes out. And he's also waiting for one more thing, which we'll see here in a minute. <clears throat> This is what he's waiting for. Then God spoke to Noah saying, go out of the ark. So that's what he's really waiting for. He's waiting for God to tell him it's safe. So he's gone through all these machinations of sending out birds and looking around. But what's he really waiting for? He's really waiting for the Lord to tell him it's okay to get off that ark. The Lord told him to get on there. And Noah's really waiting for the Lord to tell him to get off again. And we see that in verse 15, uh, where the Lord tells him, hey, time to get off the ark. Uh, go out of the ark, and then there's a. Um, he tells Noah to leave the ark with his family, and God commands Noah to bring out the animals too. Um, and so, and we get a. Uh, just as we, as we go into the ark, we see a detailed description of the passengers as they leave the ark. So he describes who's coming off the ark. Noah and his wife and his sons and his sons' wives uh, are coming off, just like we get an inventory of who went on. 
Uh, we get an inventory of the animals too, um, the birds and the animals and the creeping things. Um, that we get a description of who went on the ark. We get a description of who came off the ark. Uh, so there's a detailed description of the eight people and who they are. There's a detailed description of the land vertebrates and who they are when they uh, come off the ark. And then we get the explicit purpose. Uh, God describes once again the purpose for which he brought all these animals onto his ark. Um, the purpose of preserving the animals in the ark was that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So he's talking specifically about the animals there. Um, telling them, there's a, we'll see in chapter 9, there's a specific command to Noah and his sons to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth as well. But this is the one saying, this is the reason why I saved all these animals, I want them to be fruitful and multiply and go out. And they do, of course the animals obey God, the people not so much, uh, we'll see in chapter 11. The people don't, don't obey God and spread out like they're supposed to. Um, and so God takes things into his own hands, we'll see in chapter 11. Uh, but there's the purpose there. Um, and then, of course, we have Noah uh, once again obeying. So Noah went out. So God told him to go out, so he went out. And so all along in this um, description of this event, we see Noah is always obedient to the Lord. Uh, he does what God tells him to do. God tells him to build an ark, he builds an ark. God tells him to go in with all these animals, he goes in with all these animals. God tells him to go off, he goes off uh, the ark. Uh, so Noah's obedient. He does what, what God says. Um, and also notice in here, um, I didn't put it on here, but uh, the animals go out by their families, it says. By their families. So there's families of animals coming off this ark. So what does that tell you? So they, they went in by pairs. They come off by families. So, so what, what happened during the year of the flood? They multiplied. They started multiplying already. So they come off by families. They go on by pairs, come off by families. Uh, the animals, that's the description of the animals. Um, okay, so the Bible uh, tells us about that too. So we do have time. So I'm going to get into the Ice Age. Uh, any questions about any of that before I go into the Ice Age? About the subsiding of the flood, uh, the fact that it was a year, the fact that the Bible makes really clear by giving us specific months and days to make sure we understand that this thing was a year and ten days long. Yeah. Um, if, if I look at our earth right now and it's completely covered in water for a year and everything dies and the water subsides and you are left with dry land, I would think that they got off that ark and it was pretty stark. Is yeah. that correct? I mean, I'm thinking you're not seeing giant trees. No, no. You're not no, no. seeing green grass. You're no. like seeing none of that for them. Some, some growth, I'm yeah. sure, right? Yeah, so that's right. So think about what Noah and his family would have seen when they came off the right. ark. Pretty stark, I think. Uh, we have evidence from the dove bringing back an olive plants that, that things had started to grow. Plants had started to grow back. And remember, after that olive branch, he, he waits another three months. So he waits another month, takes off the cover, he waits another two months comes out of the ark. So it's three months after we know for certain that plants had started to grow. Okay. And so in a three-month period, a lot of plants could grow. Right. There could have been grass here and there. There could have been shrubs and bushes and things but like that. But you're, you're not going to have any, you know, 30-foot tall trees. Right. Right. Um, right. So okay. that would be 
very stark to look at. Isn't a world with no trees. Isn't this told them to start um, eating animals? Yes, we'll and see that. Why? Yeah, we'll see that in chapter 9. Yeah, okay. the, the, the fact that we're, they're allowed to eat animals starting. Okay. Uh, they never were from Genesis 1 up to Genesis 9. Genesis 9, we'll see they are allowed to start eating animals. Okay. Yeah. Kind of along those lines, at this point, they have to start living off the land instead of out of what they packed in the ark. So uh, we don't know how much they packed on the ark, but uh, my guess is they packed a lot and that they still had food. My guess is that they still had food uh, when they came off the ark. But they did have to start planting after that, and we see that. Noah plants a vineyard. He, he makes grapes, and he gets drunk. And mm-hmm. We'll see that when we get to chapter 9. Uh, sad story. But yes, they started to plant right away. We see that. The Bible is clear about that. They started to plant things mm-hmm. to eat as soon as they got off the ark. But they were also allowed to eat animals. Yes? <clears throat> For mice. <laughs> the, the ark was a flat bottom boat, We don't know. We, we don't know, but I mean, that's a possible. Right, yeah, we don't know, but yeah, that's. A muddy one. Yeah. But and, and not hard rock. Remember, all over the. Yeah, so all, all over the earth was sediment. Yeah, all over the earth was sediments, remember. Uh, what, we, what we see as hard mountain rock today, almost all of that is sedimentary rock. And so right after the flood, that wouldn't have been hard. It would have been soft. And so essentially the, the ark settled in soft mud. That's what it settled in. So it could have settled so it would be um, you know, parallel. To yeah, yeah, because... Right, because it, it's settling gently and gradually into soft mud. And so what does gravity do? It's going to keep it. Yeah. 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 And, and remember, remember the Bible says God, rem- God remembered Noah and all the inhabitants of the ark. And so God was in charge of this thing. And so is God going to set the ark down somewhere where it you know, falls over on its side or something? No. Remember, God is in charge of this whole thing. Um, you know, there's, there's, he's sovereign over every bit of his creation, including that ark and where it landed and, and what attitude it was in when it landed. And um, he, he was in charge of all that. Um, and so he's not going to let the ark you know, slide down the side of a mountain or something. Okay, yeah, good question. But yeah, think, think, Make sure you think about it in that way, the way that the Bible describes it, as God remembers Noah. That means God is specifically acting on behalf of Noah and the people and all the animals on the ark. Yeah. Okay, any other questions about uh, what's going on in the flood before I get into the Ice Age? Okay, let's talk about the Ice Age. So there's strong evidence that ice and snow once covered much of Canada, the northern USA, northwest Eurasia, not just ice and snow, but glaciers. So uh, when glaciers uh, advance and retreat, it, it grinds up the underlying uh, uh, material. And so you see the, you see the um, we can still see today the effects of a glacier moving through uh, a certain area. Um, and so, and you, we see that in, uh, all the way through southern Canada, northern United States, and in uh, northern Europe and uh, northern uh, western Asia. Um, so, yeah, there was an ice age. There was a time when glaciers were covering uh, places that, you know, snow and ice don't cover today. 
so evolutionists believe that there were many ice ages. Uh, but the evidence that they used to say that there were many ice ages looked very suspiciously like advance and retreat cycles of a single ice age. Um, and in the biblical uh, framework of history, one ice age with a lot of advance and retreat cycles uh, looks like it fits in with the biblical story of history. Evolutionary, evolutionists find the cause of the ice age a great mystery. Um, they can't figure out how we could have the conditions for an ice age. Uh, because obviously the climate has to be colder, but cooler global temperatures lead to less evaporation from the oceans, less precipitation, and less snow and ice. So if you cool down the whole world, you don't get an ice age. You, you get less evaporation from the oceans, and you get less water on the land. Um, and, for example, Antarctica qualifies as a desert. Um, you can just uh, just Google Antarctica and desert. Uh, Antarctica is officially a desert. Uh, it only gets six and a half inches of precipitation per year. That's like the, similar to the Sahara. It doesn't get any precipitation. Why does it get no precipitation? Because it's too cold. And the oceans around there are too cold. So there's no evaporation from the oceans around there. And so there's no source of precipitation on Antarctica. So it's a desert. So snow and ice doesn't fall there. Um, and so in the tropics, where the ocean water is warm, you get a large amount of evaporation, and you get a huge amount of rainfall in the tropics because the oceans are warm. That's where the water comes from to make rain. Um, and so it's a conundrum. So an ice age, in order to have an ice age, you need to simultaneously have warm oceans and cold continents at the same time. Unusually warm oceans, much warmer than today, and unusually cold continents, cooler than today. So how does that happen? How can you get warm oceans and cold continents at the same time? Well, the flood provides those conditions. Uh, the fountains of the Great Deep broke up. And so that is most likely water coming up from the ground and lots of geologic work of breaking up. So hot water and lava poured directly into the oceans. So all over the world there are what geologists called large igneous provinces, LIPs, large igneous provinces all over the world. There are enormous lava flows, much larger than anything we see today, not associated with a particular volcano uh, in many cases. Uh, just lava came up from the ground, from massive fissures, openings all over the world. Uh, and many of them are in the present ocean basins. And so uh, it is likely that these vast lava flows occurred during the flood, since there does not seem to be any other time in Earth's history as related in the Bible when this kind of activity could have taken place and not killed everyone. Um, and so it took place during the flood all these large igneous problems, massive lava flows. So what happens when massive lava gets flowed into a globe-covering ocean? What does that massive lava flow does? It heats up all the water all over the earth, heated up to much higher temperatures than our oceans today. The result of all that lava is that the global floodwaters would have been significantly heated, so much warmer than oceans that we're used to today. Um, 
there's also evidence of massive volcanic eruptions on the land in the immediate post-flood time frame. Uh, eruptions that were are much larger than anything we've seen in recorded history uh, since then. Um, and this was, of course, large amounts of aerosol particles in the atmosphere, blocking out sunlight and causing much cooler temperatures on land. So you have the conditions right after the flood, evidence in the geologic record that the conditions right after the flood were such that you had very warm oceans and cold continents at the same time. And that's exactly what you need for an ice age. And so the aftermath of the flood would have produced the very unusual conditions required for an ice age. Warm oceans to provide a very high rate of evaporation to keep the atmosphere full of water vapor and cold continents because of aerosols blocking the sun to make sure the precipitation on the continents was mostly snow instead of rain. This would result in increased snowfall in the continents with snow falling faster than it could melt. Ice sheets would build up. This ice buildup over centuries produced glaciers that advanced and retreated with the seasons and over the years to leave geologic evidence that we see today. So um, I just want to give you some modern examples from, uh, uh, I'll tell you about these two books. So uh, there's two books that are written by a name uh, by uh, Dr. Michael Ord. He wrote one called Ice Age, the only, only the Bible explains it, and The Frozen Record. Um, he's a climatologist, a Christian climatologist, and he goes into great scientific detail about how this works. Um, I'm only giving you a very top-level view. If you want a uh, detailed PhD-level scientific analysis of what I'm just telling you, uh, two books, The Ice Age Only Bible Explains It and The Frozen Record, both by Dr. Michael Ord. So I just want to give you an example of this. So Mount Pinatubo, does, who remembers Mount Pinatubo? Um, was anybody there to see it? I was actually there to see it. I, I, I was in the Philippines. Um, I, I, not exactly while it was going off. I flew in about uh, six weeks later after it went off. Um, and it, it, normally, so I went to the Philippines many, many times. And normally when you fly into the Philippines, you see nothing but green. It's very lush as far as the eye can see as you come into the Philippines. And then when I came in 1991, in July of 1991, we came down out of the clouds and it looked like the surface of the moon. Nothing but ash, nothing but gray, as far as the eye could see. Um, so Mount Pinatubo goes up. Um, it uh, was a very large earthquake by modern standards. Um, and, um, but it's a much smaller scale than the eruptions that are in the geological record from right after the flood. But it was ten times larger than Mount St. Helens. Mount St. Helens is a pretty big er uh, volcano, but uh, Pinatubo is ten times the size. Um, it ejected 2.4 cubic miles of matter into the atmosphere. Uh, it killed 850 people. Uh, it made an ash cloud 13 miles high. Um, and it ejected uh, 15 to 30 million tons of sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere. Uh, that sulfur dioxide forms, uh, together with water and oxygen, forms sulfuric acid in an aerosol form um, all the way up in the stratosphere. Um, and that sulfuric acid persisted for three years, from 1991 to 1994. Um, and it scattered in the stratosphere, and it reflected sunlight, and it reduced the level of sunlight, releasing the Earth by 10%, this one volcano in 1991. So the average global temperature for the next two years after that eruption dropped by 
uh, a measurable amount, 0 0.7 degrees Fahrenheit, the entire global temperature dropped because of that one volcano. Um, now, did, did it completely blot out the sun? Do, do you remember from 1991 to 1994, was there no sunlight during those years? No. No, there, it didn't blot out the sun. What it does was it reflects enough sunlight to actually change global temperatures. This one volcano, um, measurable amount. Um, there's also two videos you can watch, The Mammoths in the Ice Age and um, uh, The Great Ice Age, two great videos uh, that I recommend as well. So one volcano we know for certain puts enough aerosol up there to change global temperatures. Now, what was the size of the... So these are the relative size of material spewed into the air by a volcano. Uh, right here is Mount St. Helens, that little tiny dot. Right here is Mount Pinatubo, right there. Mount Krakatoa in 1883, Mount Tambora in 1813, both in Indonesia. But these three are all ones that occurred immediately in the aftermath of the flood. Look at those and in, in, compared to the size of Mount Pinatubo, the amount that came out in these two Yellowstone eruptions and the Yellow Valley eruption. Those are both, all three of those were in the United States, the Western United States. How much more aerosols went into the air from those three volcanoes that all erupted at the end of the flood compared to Mount Pinatubo? That's a huge amount of aerosols. That's a huge amount. Uh, Mount Pinatubo reflected about 10% of the sun's light. 10% uh, less light got through to the Earth's surface. What happens when you put in thousands of times more aerosols into the air than Mount Pinatubo? You, you get tremendous global cooling because of these enormous volcanoes. Tremendous global cooling. At the same time as the oceans are very hot. So lots of evaporation. And then over the continents it's very cold and lots of snow keeps falling, keeps falling, keeps falling, keeps falling. Uh, the Mount Pinatubo uh, persisted for three years. Who knows how long it, these persisted. It looks like the Ice Age lasted for several centuries. Uh, that's what the geologic record shows. Several centuries, like four or five hundred years after the flood. The conditions were there still for uh, this Ice Age. Um, well, would, it yeah. been colder, would it have been colder in some parts? Yeah. Uh, the so, world than, I mean, Noah wasn't coming out like right. in, in zero. Right. So, so remember where Noah is. He's in the Middle East. Right. Right. So he's not in, he's not in Northern Europe. Right. He's not in Northern Asia. He's not in the Northern United States or Canada. He's in the Middle East. And so, so who, who's in charge of where the ark landed? God was in charge of where the ark landed. So the ark landed in some place that was not a frozen tundra. Right. So God made sure the ark landed where it wasn't a but it's susceptible still would have to the been ice age. Cooler, cooler. Yeah, I think so. Had it not been for these mm -hmm. eruptions. Yeah, well, cooler than the Middle East is today, I think. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, no, so not I mean not hot enough to boil things, but say uh, you know the 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 ocean temperature at the equator can be eighty, eighty five degrees. Well, if you made the entire ocean 80 or 85 degrees for a couple of centuries, you would get enormous amounts of evaporation, and just like you do at the tropics today. 
when the, when the ocean's 80 or 85 degrees, you get lots of evaporation, huge amounts of rainfall at the tropics. Uh, just to, well, just imagine the entire ocean is the tropics. You get huge amounts of evaporation, but then that evaporation immediately, as it goes over the continent, it encounters you know freezing cold temperatures, and so it falls as snow. So you get tropical snowstorms essentially, uh, <laughs> tropical level amounts of precipitation all as snow, and that ends up building up, building up, building up to make glaciers. So yeah, that's that's the conditions you need to make an ice age. You need, you need really warm oceans, and you need right next to really warm, really cold continents. And so it's a huge mystery to those who don't believe the Bible. How can you get the really warm oceans and the really cold continents? Um, okay, so um, yeah, so that's the story. Um, there's some um, some other uh, ways to, to these are more dots that show the size of uh, eruptions. Um, with Pinatubo, you know, you know, here's Mount St. Helens. Here's the the recent ice earthquake or volcano in Iceland. That one from 2010 is there. It put that much out, similar to Mount St. Helens, not nearly as big as Pinatubo, but these ones from uh, the ancient times are right around the flood. Uh, this this Long Valley one is in, like um, um, I think Long Valley and Yellowstone or in California, Crater Lakes in Oregon. Um, Wawa Springs is in Utah, uh, right at the Utah-Nevada border, uh, and that's the biggest one we, we have. Um, that's huge. I mean, 5,500 cubic kilometers of stuff came out of that one volcano. Um, that's a, a huge volcano. Um, so, and, and there's nothing in modern times that compares anything like that kind of an eruption. Uh, let me show you that Wawa Springs one. Wawa Springs Tough uh, for the super eruption. You can see, I don't know if you can see there, uh, this is the border here between Utah and Nevada. Mm -hmm. And that's where the caldera is for this Wawa uh, Springs super volcano. And the the picture that's shown there is the, 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 the depth of ash from that fell from that eruption. And the red area um, is a few feet. The yellow and green um, areas are um, in hundreds of feet, so hundreds of feet of ashfall. Uh, the blue area in the center is thousands of feet of ashfall, and the center of the deposit is 15,000 feet thick. So imagine, you know, if ash falls and you get a couple of inches of it or a couple of feet of it, this is 15,000 feet of ash uh, fall uh, in one spot. Um, and, and a huge area around there that's more than a thousand feet of ashfall. Um, th this is something like nothing you see in modern modern times. It's a huge volcano. And this um, happened around the flood. This happened right at the end of the flood. Okay, so with all due respect, how do they know that? So how how do we know what? How do they know that it erupted then? So you know, the, the the seculars say it, uh, it erupted like uh, 550 million years ago. Right, right. Well, I know, um, so I, I how, know that. How do we right, know? How do we know? So how do we know that it's it erupted then and not? Yeah. Well, so um, it, it didn't it didn't erupt much later than that mm -hmm. because we don't have ice ages from the time of Abraham, for example. Okay. So. If you go too much further into history, we have lots of recorded history from lots of places around the world mm -hmm. uh, because there were people there. And 
there is no recorded gigantic eruptions like this from later times. Mm -hmm. um, and there is also no, um, there's nothing to indicate in the Bible that you would have something like this before the flood. Mm -hmm. um, because if you did this before the flood, once again, you get an ice age before the flood. Mm -hmm. Um, and you just don't see that in the Genesis record. Mm -hmm. And so, essentially, it's a process of elimination. When could this have happened and not killed everybody? And when could this have happened and not, uh, and not otherwise be recorded in history? Um, when, when is the one time when there weren't people around to observe and record something like that? So there is the acknowledgement that there was an ice age. Mm -hmm. okay. yeah. So biblically speaking, this would have been the only time that it possibly that could it have happened. Right. Do we have evidence of this happening? I mean, yes. So yes. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, so yeah. You can you can see all the um, the results of this volcano are still there. Okay. Geologists today can dig in and look at the ash. And so that's what they've done here. Modern geologists have made this map of where the ash went around this volcano. Uh, 15,000 feet of it in the center. Uh, that's a lot of ash, 15,000 feet of it. Um, so, it, I mean, if, if there were people around, it would kill everybody, uh, absolutely everybody. Uh, nobody could live in the vicinity of a volcano like that, uh, where 15,000 feet of ash are falling on you. Um, okay. So there's, there's evidence of lots of uh, stupendous geologic work, like uh, these large igneous provinces and these huge volcanoes, um, and those are, within the biblical story, they fit in the flood time frame, the flood and the immediate post-flood. And also, the flood itself provides the conditions to have an ice age in the first place which are very unusual and very difficult for um, evolutionists to imagine how could we have had those kind of conditions. But if you actually had a global flood like the Bible describes, these kind of conditions are very understandable, uh, how you would end up with uh, warm oceans and cold continents. Okay. So, uh, one more thing I want to talk about the Ice Age in the last few minutes we have left. Now, this is called the Ghost Squadron. So... Uh, in 1942, six P-38 Lightnings uh, crashed in Greenland. Um, they, um, they were abandoned, um, and years later, uh, in 1988, a guy wanted to go find them. He wanted to go find these aircraft that had crashed in Greenland, um, and he, he expected they would be only covered with a few feet of snow um, because the, the secular... Um, the secular way of dating ice cores said that there was millions of years of ice in Greenland. Um, and after, from 1942 to 1988, it should only be a very small amount um, of ice in that, that story. But it turns out he found them 79 meters uh, down into the snow, more than 200 feet down. Um, so there's a picture, an actual picture, of one of the P-38s right after it crashed in 1942. They found it 79 meters down, covered in 79 meters of ice in 1988. So 42 to 88, that's 46 years. In 46 years, millions of years of ice went over top of that plane. So 
For years and years and years, scientists had been very confidently saying that the Bible's chronology could not be correct because there were hundreds of thousands or millions of years of ice in Greenland and Antarctica. They said, we can take these core samples, we can count each one of these layers as a year, it's hundreds of thousands or millions of years. Very confident. And then this happened. Um, that the fact that this thing was under 79 meters, 250 feet of ice in only 46 years. Um, this is a picture of it today. It actually flies. They, they brought it up from 79 meters down. They put it back together. That's what it looked like when they first brought it up. Now it looks like that. It flies around. It goes and does these air shows. They call it Glacier Girl. Um, so uh, what's happening here? So, um, so really, um, we have absolute proof that those Greenland ice core, that method of saying that there's 100,000 or millions of years, that's wrong. And, and the reason it's wrong is because in Greenland, you could have more than one snowstorm in a day. You could have hundreds of snowstorms in a year. And so really what those layers are are just snowstorms, sometimes more than one a day. Um, and so this huge 79 meters, 250 feet of ice is only 46 years. We know for certain, absolute certain, we know the day that the plane was there. We know the day that it was there. We know then that it only took 46 years to make 250 feet of ice and snow on top uh, in Greenland. Um, and so, and yet, for years, decades, uh, scientists very confidently said, nope, the Bible's wrong about its timeline, and we can say that because these ice core samples say there's been hundreds of thousands of millions of years. And so the lesson is... When a scientist very confidently says something disproves the Bible, um, just remember this. Uh, just remember this. Uh, it, you know, they, they very confidently say things that turn out to be wrong. Um, but the scripture is never wrong. The scripture has been tested for century after century after century, and it's never wrong. Um, science is good but it's wrong all the time. Uh, and especially when it tries to contradict the Bible, it's been shown to be wrong over and over and over again. All right, uh, that's all the time I have. I'm going to have to skip. Uh, I'll come back to this later. All the, the way that animals got from uh, the land bridges that were created by the Ice Age and how the animals got to the various places around the Earth, I'll have to do that next time. Okay, so uh, there's lots of stuff that i got to do next time. Um, I'll have to remember where I was so I can come back and do that next time. Um, all right, we've run out of time. I apologize. Um, let's uh, let's pray.